The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number 19 tonight. Revelation chapter 19, we're going to begin there again in verse number one as we were there uh, last week. We'll recap a few things that we discussed last week and then jump into uh, the uh, conclusion of this portion right here of uh, verses one through ten tonight. And uh, last week, of course, as we got into chapter 19, uh, we said the chapter is the beginnings of uh, Christ going to be, uh, begin to return for his second coming. The uh, war is going to quickly come to an end here in the next uh, couple of chapters or so. Uh, but to begin all of this, we find there's a great rejoicing in heaven. And we actually uh, said last week uh, that we could consider it like uh, heaven's hallelujah chorus, right? And uh, so we looked at verses 1 uh, all the way down through, I don't know, what was it, about uh, number, verse number 8 last week. We'll recap some of these things as we go along just to get back up to speed, then we'll read and, and consider verses 9 and 10 and the background of everything that leads us in to verses 11 through the end of the chapter as well. But of course, as we've been studying through the book of Revelation, we know that uh, the Lord uh, instructed John to write uh, the book particularly in an outline uh, that consists of three points. The th- first one being to write about the things he saw. Then secondly, to write about the things that are, and then what we're studying now and has been, have been since chapter four, to write about the things that are after these things. After these things, because it's after the church has been uh, raptured out, uh, it's at the beginning, uh, it starts with the beginning of the tribulation, spans all the way through those seven years, all the way into the millennial reign as well, and it's after this because we've not experienced yet, it, it yet, and uh, this is all prophecy uh, concerning these matters as we go along. But of course, um, we're studying these moments that, uh, uh, that are considered to be the climax of this book with the uh, return of Christ and the battle of Armageddon. Uh, chapter number 19 actually informs us of Christ's return. And uh, so as we've looked at this kind of uh, this time frame uh, over the last several chapters with the, the, the seven bowl or vile judgments, and uh, they was, the first one was the sores and the sea, the blood, river, the blood, burning sun, uh, painful, dark, the Euphrates dries up. And then of course, the great city is destroyed. And uh, these two judgments, uh, six and seven, the sixth and seventh vile judgment, uh, they are the beginnings of the first two phases of the War of Armageddon. And uh, those things are found in chapter 16 and 17, and particularly uh, phase two in chapter 18. But here in chapter 19, we're going to begin the third phase and all the way through the fifth phase there, as we see, and uh, that's going to be held here in chapter number 19, and we're, we're approaching that. Christ is about to step foot here uh, back you know, on the earth, and he's coming uh, to set up his kingdom and, and uh, all of those things that we'll be discussing when that time comes. But as we know, all that remains right now... Uh, on earth is uh, is Jerusalem, 
that area there in the Middle East, Babylon has been destroyed. Pretty much all the rest of the world has been destroyed. Uh, the world as we know it has been consolidated down to that one uh, small area there in the Middle East. Uh, the Antichrist is, is setting up to, to wage a great war. And as his headquarters have been destroyed, and, and uh, now he's, the only place he has left to go is to Jerusalem and try to finish off his plan of hoping to be able to stop the outcome of what the Lord uh, Jesus Christ has planned. Uh, but as we start chapter 19, or as we started, I should say, chapter 19 last week, uh, we considered the praise and we considered a, a, a particular supper that was going to be taking place as well. And so let's read these verses again together as we uh, jump into things here tonight, recap what we discussed last week, and then and, uh, get into new things here tonight. So verse number one says, and after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne, saying, uh, uh, saying Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his, his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of, a mighty, thund of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Verse number seven, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white for the fine linen of the righteous, the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Verse number nine, and he saith unto me, right, blessed are they uh, which are called unto the marriage supper of the lamb. And he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Our Father, we come to you tonight. We praise you for who you are and what you do and uh, have done, Lord. And I ask now that you just bless our time together in your word. Uh, give us clarity of thought. Guide us as we deliver it. Help us to honor and glorify you in all that is done. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we began last week with point number one, that this uh, hallelujah chorus of heaven, it involves praising God for salvation. We find that in verses one through five. And, and I won't take a lot of time to, uh, to reiterate all of those things, but the events of chapter 17 and 18 are the prelude. They are the cause of the effects that are taking place here in chapter number 19. And that's literally as it starts off. And after these things, uh, that's what that is indicating, that because of those things that we covered in chapter 17 and 18, this is the result. This is what we're seeing take place in heaven. Uh, first, we understand that it made possible for the Antichrist, those events made possible for the Antichrist to be able to move from east to west and uh, to set up there uh, in the valley so that he might be able to begin and to wage his war. And that was stage one. But stage two of the battle, as we discussed, uh, resulted in the destruction of Babylon. It began as those who had given their power, the nations that had given their power unto the Antichrist, it began with them uh, trying to 
to, to start off with a coup, if you may, and, and uh, to uh, attack uh, Babylon and, and try to bring their own power back. And uh, after they kind of set the pace, the Lord finished it. And uh, with, uh, with uh, his, his mighty fury, he uh, brought a complete destruction uh, to Babylon, which leads to a moment of worship and praise in heaven for all the things that he's done and for the things that he's about to do. And that's what we see in verses 1 through 5. And then, of course, the, the hallelujah chorus of heaven it involves glorifying God for his spouse. And then we looked at verses 6 through 8. And we find this marriage supper that was going to be taking place. And we alluded to the fact that Paul in Ephesians 5, he likens the church and he instructs us as the church uh, that our relationship with our God is similar to that of the husband and a wife. And, and when he tells that the man, to, the husband, to love his wife as even Christ has loved the church and gave himself for it, at the end of that chapter he says, hey, this sounds like a mystery but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. And uh, so as they we're speaking about the bride and the groom and the bride being made ready for this, this great supper and, and what will be taking place, that's what's, what it's discussing. Uh, the fact that the believers, the church age believers are going to be there and, and as the bride are going uh, to enjoy this time together. We have already likened this, of course, to the, uh, to the Jewish wedding ceremony, right? And the betrothal process, we reiterated that last week. And so we won't take time to uh, necessarily re, uh, go back over all of those things as we've got a lot to cover here even still tonight with only two verses uh, left to go here even still. But uh, the Bible says uh, that we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, right? And uh, we understand that. And all these things that are taking place and we're going to worship with him and we're going to, re- we're going to look forward to reign with him as we will approach re- the return during his millennial reign. But then in verses 9 and 10, this heaven's hallelujah chorus also invo- involves uh, worshiping God uh, for the Savior, worshiping God for the Savior. In verse number 9, it says, And he saith unto me, uh, this is, the same, I believe, the same voice that called out from the throne, uh, commanding the multitude there to worship God and to praise Him for what He has done. It says in verse number 9, and He saith, I believe it's an angel that's declaring this, right, and, uh, right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God. And so, we find that as this worship continues, there's a call to praise and to bless uh, the name of the Lord for uh, they had been called to the marriage supper uh, because of the Savior, because of the Lamb. And so the first group that has been mentioned in these first 10 verses, we said, of course, is the bride. That's the church. We, we've discussed that in detail already. And uh, they were preparing for this supper, and they were adorned or arrayed in garments, as we read as well. But uh, a wedding, as we discussed at the end of, of the message last week, needs a wedding party also. And uh, so it says here in verse number nine that those, th- those that are called unto the marriage supper are, to, are blessed. Well, we don't call the bride to the marriage supper because there's no marriage supper without the bride. 
We don't call the groom to the marriage supper because there's no marriage supper without the groom. So these are guests that are being mentioned here. And so who, is, who are these guests that are invited uh, to this wedding in heaven? Well, in verse number nine, the Bible tells us that uh, they're able to we- view this wedding moment in heaven. And uh, by doing that, they're blessed by the opportunity. So who else is present in heaven at the same time as church age believers? Who else is there but that is not church age believers? Well, the, the obvious conclusion to that would be Old Testament saints and tribulation saints as well, those who have already been martyred for their faith as well. Now, this is where when we, when we approach the Bible with just striving to let the Bible speak for itself, and when we approach the Bible and try to let the Bible uh, explain what it explains and approach it logically, and we approach it literally as, as, as best as possible, unless it literally tells us to, that it is a picture or a sign, this is where it helps us steer away from a lot of trouble. Because there would be people that would say that, well, the uh, guests are anyone who has been saved, but they're not Baptist. I'm not kidding. There's groups out there that would say that the bride is only Baptist. And if, you're, if you don't call yourself Baptist, and you're not baptized into a Baptist church, then, you, then you're not part of the bride. Now, that's not what the Bible says if we follow it logically and literally. But when we try to read into things that aren't there, we're setting ourselves up for uh, mistakes at the the best, you know what I mean? And if not full-on purposeful contradictions so that we can make our group better than others maybe or whatever the case might be that terminology that's it's literally called baptist briders is what is what that would be uh called but as i study the word of god if i follow it literally and logically there it just doesn't it doesn't flow it doesn't come that way if god said that he speaks of the bride as being the church so any any saved individual during this time frame of the church would have to fall into that category of the bride. And we can still have guests because Old Testament saints fall out of that category. And, and martyred tribulation saints fall out of that category as well. So there's no contradiction still. And so there's no reason to, to, to try to read into something that is not there. And so if, as we left that cliffhanger maybe last week, if you were hoping for something more than that, I'm sorry, uh, because it's not any more, more profound than that. It's just as simple as that. And I believe, according to what the Scripture seems to state, uh, that the bride is the church and, and uh, those that are there as the guests are those who were saved on either side of the church age as well. And so the uh, Old Testament saints would be every believer from uh, the beginning uh, of, of humanity all the way till about John the Baptist or so. And then uh, the tribulation, church, uh, tribulation saints would be anyone after the rapture of the, of the church and uh, forward that has, had already been martyred for their faith as well. And the reason why uh, we find that they're not being adorned with the garments like the church age saints or the bride is they're still awaiting their resurrection, which we'll talk more about here in the future as well. But uh, meanwhile, 
they, they, these saints, they're looking on uh, as uh, the church is participating in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And, uh, and at the thought of this, uh, verse number 10 says, John is so moved by what he's seen and the message that is being relayed unto him and the, and the blessing that it truly is to be able to, uh, to participate in that. In verse number 10, it says, and I fell at his feet to worship him. I fell at his feet to worship him, speaking of the one who said, hey, those that are part of it are blessed. The one who has called out from the throne saying, hey, worship our God. Now, we would almost just, uh, if we're not careful, think the one calling out from the throne would have been God himself. But why would he say worship our God you know, and talk about himself in that way? So obviously, I believe this is an angelic messenger that's proclaiming this. And uh, John begins to worship him and further proof that it isn't God or, or Lord Jesus Christ uh, here is because the messenger says to John, hey, get up. Don't do that. Don't, don't worship me. Look what he says there in verse number 10. See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He said, I'm just another servant of God. I'm, I, I'm just his messenger. And instead of worshiping me, we worship God only. I mean, think of it like in the, around here, especially in the heat of the summer when it's really dry outside and stuff, maybe we're outside working and you've, you've built up quite an, a, a thirst, all right? And so you go into the house, and uh, you just crank open the faucet and put that cup right underneath the tap, and you, you take a drink of it and chug the water down. You say, oh, that, that just that, that quenches my thirst. I'm so thankful for the pipes that the water flew, flow, flowed through, right? No, we don't do that. We're thankful for the water because the water is what gave us and quenched the thirst, not the conduit through which it flowed. And so listen, as a servant of God, oh, we are just a conduit through which the power of God is able to flow. And so our, uh, we as, as servants of God, angels as messengers of God, we don't, we don't worship man. We don't worship angels because we're just messengers. We're just servants of God. And he, the only one that deserves the worship is God himself, of course. Now, at this point, though, in chapter 19, as we move into verse number 11, the first few ver words say this, and I saw heaven opened. Now, here's the, I mean, this is about, it's, a, it's about to get on right here, right? And uh, the Lord's returning. But before we move into verse 11, because we're not, we're not quite ready for that step. We need to go back and make sure that we have a solid foundation of what's taking place on earth because we've left some things left undone. We've alluded to them. We've, uh, we have referenced them, but we haven't really given the whole complete aspect of what's taking place. So let's, as if we were watching a movie, think about flashing back down to the earth. Right before this moment where Jesus steps down and we're going to find out what's taking place. And so on the earth at this point, uh, the world has been rocked by all of these, these plagues and all these, uh, this turmoil and all these tragedies. Uh, devastation has plagued it. The kingdom of Satan itself literally has uh, pretty much been completely wiped out other than the army that's there and the little bit of work that they're going to try to do in the last part of the battle. And his army is now on the move, of course. We said 
this was his headquarters, and um, when uh, the, fir- the, the first stage of the Battle of Armageddon allowed for them, uh, as, the, uh, as the river of blood was dried up, allowed for them to be able to cross over from east to west, and once they arrived here, then, of course, Babylon's destroyed. And so the army is now going to move southward, and the only cities that are left really is Jerusalem, as you see there, and where the, and the, where the remnant of the Jews, where God had moved to the wilderness already in Bozor or Petra, as we talked about previously in our studies as well. And since his headquarters are gone, he's got no choice but to move forward, try to make Jerusalem his new cap- capital, try to stop and thwart the efforts of Jesus Christ. And, and so now this great war of God is about to uh, take place, a war that we call Armageddon. And we've already studied stages one and two as we discussed uh, earlier. So now as we come into stage three of this battle, uh, of the war, or, or the battle of Armageddon, uh, we 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 see this next part of our study begin to unfold, and and stage three involves uh, three different locations found over in the Middle East. Particularly, those locations are Jerusalem, Bozrah or Petra, there as you see on the screen, and the Mount of Olives. And so, so that we can have the background of what it's going to be like before Jesus ever steps out of heaven and right there to earth, right? So that we know the, the landscape and the climate of the world. We know that there's great wars that have taken, I mean, just devastation, I should say, rather, right? I mean, there's not much left, but so that we have a proper picture of what it's going to be like when Jesus does literally come back. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 11. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there if you'd like, uh, or just follow along and listen as I read. If you were here for our Daniel study, you'll remember some of this. We've referenced it in in weeks past, even in our Revelation studies as well, Uh, but just helping to lay that foundation to see the scene exactly as it will be when Jesus returns. Daniel 11, Daniel 11, verses 36 through 39. It says, And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that is determined shall be done. Uh, Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces, and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he, thus shall he do in the most strongholds uh, with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many, and shall divide the land for gain." In passage, this passage we've studied earlier, of course, though we learned that the Antichrist would dominate the world and take control by the power of Satan. We've seen this unfold as we've studied since uh, pretty much chapter 4 to this point now, uh, what has taken place over a period of seven years. And little by little, halfway through, about three and a half years, he's, he's, he has risen to his peak prominence. And we know that's going to be the case, and that's what has happened. But we read on further in verses 40 and 41, Daniel 11, verses 40 and 41. And at the time of the end, now, at the time of the end, he's talking about at the end of the tribulation, 
right when the Lord is about to return for his second coming. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him with a whirlwind and with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. He shall enter also into the glorious land. That word glorious land is another name for Jerusalem. And many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. And so notice, we first notice verse number 40 uh, in Daniel says that at the end, at the end of time, at the the time of the end, um, as we said already, meaning at the end of the seven years of tribulation. So these events are right here at the moment where Jesus is about to step forward. Chapter 10, I'm sorry, chapter 19, verse 10 of Revelation, uh, Dan, I'm sorry, John, if I can get names right, John has just bowed down to worship the angel. The angel says, don't do that. We worship only God. All right. And then verse number 11, and I saw heaven open. So this Daniel 11 at the, at the time of the end is moments prior to Revelation 19 and verse number 11, right? You get follow what I'm saying here? And so what is being said in these two verses is, is preceding uh, the event of verse 11 in chapter 19. And so at this time, two of the seven kings, it says the king of the north, the king of the south, they're going to take action against the uh, Antichrist. This king of the, of the south and the north collide, and, and uh, they, it says, the Bible literally says, push against him, uh, as in to press in, to bring, uh, to bring pressure against. And uh, these are the two kings that we studied back in Revelation chapter 18 that began uh, this attack against Babylon, that the Lord himself finally completed the attack there as well. But then verse number 41 of Daniel 11 confirms that the Antichrist had left Babylon and had moved westward and had entered into the region of Jerusalem. Because as I mentioned, as we were reading the verse, verse number 41 says that he shall enter also into the glorious land. Anytime we find the phrase glorious land or beautiful land in scripture, it is referencing Jerusalem. Because to a Jewish leader, or Jewish reader, I should say, the only land in their mind that is glorious or beautiful is their, their homeland. It's Jerusalem. That's their, that's, that's their capital. And, uh, but notice also uh, that it says three areas of the world will be rescued out of his hand. That it will, they'll, they'll be protected for a period. And those areas that are mentioned in Daniel 11, verse 41, is the areas of Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Now, these are ancient names for roughly the same area. And that is what we would call present-day Jordan, just east of the Jordan River. Interestingly enough, this area that we're talking about, Moab or, or Ammon or, uh, or, uh, or uh, Edom, uh, that area there east of the Jordan is the same area where we have Bozer or Petra as well. And we find that's exactly where the Lord had taken uh, the remnant of the believing Jews to protect them in the wilderness during that time also. And uh, so this area, the Bible says, is rescued out of the hand of the Antichrist in the end. Uh, that means that uh, the Antichrist is going to try to attack, but uh, there's going to be protection. 
And Jeremiah actually gives us some more information about that as well. So this is all setting the stage. Verse 11, the heavens open up and Jesus is about to step to the earth. So we're getting a picture of what it's like on the earth before Jesus ever comes. What it's like is Antichrist has left Babylon. He's entered into the land of Jerusalem. When he gets word that Babylon is completely destroyed, now he's got to do something. He's making his way down to try to, to wage war against anyone who is still standing in opposition of him including those who are in Botsra, and he's going to try to attack, but the Lord is going to deliver that land out of his hands in the end. Jeremiah puts it this way in Jeremiah 49. Jeremiah 49, verses 13 through 16. It says, For I have sworn by myself, saith the Lord, that Botsra shall become a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse, and all the cities thereof shall be perpetual wastes. I have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent unto the heathen, saying, Gather ye together, and come against her, and rise up to the battle. For lo, I will make thee small among the heathen, and despised among men. The, ta- uh, the, the uh, terribleness hath deceived thee, and the pride of thine heart. O thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, that holdest the height of the hill, uh, though thou shouldest make thy nest as high as the eagle, I will bring thee down from thence, saith the Lord. So what remains of the Antichrist's armed forces? Uh, they're located roughly in two places, there in the north which in Jerusalem, a few scattered around the outskirts of Babylon, and they had watched the destruction of Babylon. They've seen it all take place. And so uh, the Antichrist then, of course, uh, says, let's gather everybody together, and we're going to assemble together to destroy everything. And so Jeremiah says in verse number 14 that the Antichrist will send his envoy probably on horseback and with chariots and such, uh, uh, from Babylon and uh, instructs them to attack. Their target is going to be the Jews, those that are left, the remnant there that are protected in the wilderness in Botsra. Remember that at the midpoint of tribulation, that's where God escorted the Jews. And, And Satan himself tried to destroy them at that time, bringing floods, right? And it wasn't able, the, the, the earth just consumed the floods that were brought that way. We discussed that back uh, uh, several weeks ago. But he's prepared this place and, uh, in just the, the present-day southern Jordan, a rocky canyon area there that can't easily be breached. And in the Bible, this place, Botsra or Petra, uh, it has, it, that, that has the meaning of literally like a sheep's fold or a sheep's pen. And what it's saying there is that the Lord is going to protect his people there like sheep are protected by their shepherd when he encaps about them and, and puts them in the pen. Uh, and the enemy is going to desire to attack. He's going to try his best to destroy them. We read in Jeremiah that his plan is to bring it to waste, to bring it to desolation and all those things, right? But at the very end of tribulation, when the Antichrist tries to destroy the Jews, hiding there in Bozrah or hiding there in Petra, uh, when he does, Jeremiah says that Bozrah in Edom will become a ruin What he means there is that the Antichrist forces there will come to ruin. In verse number 15, the Lord says that he's made the Antichrist's army small among the nations. The Antichrist was the most powerful man in the world at the midpoint of tribulation. And he's quickly 
and he's losing his power here at the end. Things are slipping through his grasp. And so what we're seeing is he is literally being made small among those who are, who are still around in that day. His army has been greatly reduced by the judgments. His, his headquarters has been completely destroyed. And Jeremiah goes on to discuss this even further in Jeremiah 40, 49 and verses 21 and 22. 21 says this, the earth is moved that the noise of their fall at the cry, the noise thereof was heard in the Red Sea. Behold, he shall come up and fly as the eagle and spread his wings over Bozrah. And at, the day shall, at that day shall the heart of the mighty men of Edom be as the heart of a woman in her pangs. And so in verses 21 and 22, Jeremiah says that the Lord is going to swoop down like, a, like an eagle would, and to defend his people. And the Lord's second coming involves first an appearance here at Botsra to defend those who are waiting on his protection, who he has brought there to, to, to wait for his return as well. And that takes us back to an overview that we find back in Daniel 11. Daniel 11. Go back with me in Daniel 11, verses 42 and 40, through 45. Daniel, Daniel 11, verses 42 through 45. Here we find the overview of it. And he shall stretch forth his hand upon uh, the, the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. They shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Uh, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly make away, uh, and utterly make away many. And uh, he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas of the glorious holy mountain. Uh, yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. Here's what the Bible is literally saying. As he's trying to take his last ditch efforts to take Jerusalem, to destroy his opposition, He's got his plan. He's, he's uh, amassed his entire army that he has. He's got the plan to bring a complete destruction and devastation. He, he comes to try to bring out that plan, but the Lord comes down and protects them there as, a, as an eagle with a spread over his, spreading his wings over that area. And, uh, and while the Antichrist rampages throughout the remaining inhabitants of the land of the Middle East, he receives the report or he receives the rumor uh, from the east and from the north. And that rumor, as it says in verse number 44 of Daniel, is, is a rumor that, that disturbs him. It reminds him of what we've discussed already about the destruction of Babylon and what he thought was his might and his power and what he had complete control over was quickly slipping through his grasps. And so, the Antichrist, while in the land of Israel, he hears of the defeat of Babylon at the hands of the king of the north. Those are the rumors that disturb him here as well. And it bring, it bring, it, they bring him to great wrath that strives to try to annihilate many. But verse number 45 says in Daniel, Daniel eleven forty-five, that the news also causes him to move his forces from the Jezreel Valley to the west side of Jerusalem. Because notice it says that he'll set, plant his tabernacles in the places between the seas and in the glorious holy mountain. So he, he sets up his tents there, his royal pavilion, if you may, uh, which shows proof of a military encampment on the move. And uh, it says it's located between two familiar places. It's located 
Here we have them where he's trying to the two places, but it's located particularly between Jerusalem, the holy mountain, and the, the great sea. Now, listen, to, the, to a Jew in Jerusalem, the only sea that there is is the Mediterranean. And so what he's saying here is that it's between the sea and that holy mountain. He's encamped somewhere here in this valley between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, so we have on the east, the beautiful holy mountain, reference to Mount Zion and the temple that would be located there in Jerusalem. On the west, the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. And so he will be located in uh, the foothills of the western side of the country. Then once again, notice that this battle uh, is not going to go his way either. Because look at Daniel 11 and verse number 45 again says he's encamped there. He's planted his tabernacles in this place between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end. end. <laughs> he's doing everything he can. Every, every thought, every plan, everything that he can come up with to try to win in the end, he's, he's pulling out all the stops, but yet he's going to come to an end. He's going to come to his end. Notice the last few words of that verse as well. And none shall help him. Now, earlier in, in, in Revelation, we read that the Lord caused or allowed the rulers of this world to give over their power unto the Antichrist, but it was only for a period. It was only for a season, only until the Lord's work was accomplished. And we find here right at the very moments, right before the heavens open, and right before Jesus steps out from heaven onto the earth, in those very moments beforehand, the Antichrist no longer has any allies. He has no forces to come to his aid. He's, he has nothing to, th- uh, than just a few men and a few horses and chariots probably. He's, he's got a very small army comparatively speaking to what he had had at one time throughout these seven years. He has nothing to stand in the way of Christ's return. And so the Antichrist, he's, he's deployed his forces, the Botsra and Jerusalem, and that's stage three of the War of Armageddon. These moments are triggered by the news that his headquarters is gone, as we discussed already. It enrages the Antichrist and leads him to go forth in anger to try to destroy anyone in his way. But at every turn, when he pulls out all the stops, it's like there's still a blockade there. Nothing is working out the way he planned. So the third area of action at, the, at Christ's second coming will ultimately be the Mount of Olives. We're going to discuss that in a, a later on as we move forward. So for now, let's just stay with the action that's taking place near Jerusalem. And let's consult just a few more texts before we close tonight to understand exactly how the battle is going to unfold when the heavens open and Jesus steps out. The armies of the Antichrist, they've sieged the city and they prepare to breach what defenses might remain. We've got to remember that the Bible speaks of some pretty primitive types of warfare that are taking place. Some have expected that, well, that's just because of in 95 AD, that's all that John really knew how to describe. And that's so he described it by what they had. But it would also seem logical that the events of tribulation have just completely devastated the world in such a way that it has pretty much turned back the clock on the world as well. So whether he's just describing it the way he knows best, or that's exactly how it, that could be the case, that it's a very primitive form of warfare that is left to be able to be accomplished in these latter days of the tribulation time. 
So the Antichrist's attack, it's going to proceed, if you may, more than likely in a manner that is similar to ancient warfare. The siege is followed by an assault and a defense just using basic weapons and ultimately resulting in some hand-to-hand combat, more than likely also. And uh, the Old Testament prophets, they give plenty of details about this attack. And we don't, we're not going to take the time to look at all of them, but I do want to highlight just a few verses, beginning with a, with a reference in the book of Joel. In Joel, verse, or Joel chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, Joel 3, verses 9 through 12, the Bible says, Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves and come, all ye heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. Thither cause thy mighty ones, uh, cause thy mighty ones to come down, O Lord. Let the uh, heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. So the Bible tells us in Joel that the warriors are going to come against the city. They've beaten their farming tools into war instruments of war. And they've come because the Lord has brought them here. It's, uh, th- this is all of the Lord's doing. He's, his, his plan is unfolding just like he said he would. It says that they've met there in the valley of Jehoshaphat. The Valley of Jehoshaphat is actually another phrase or another name for the Kidron Valley uh, that runs along the east side of the city. And so the armies approach from the west, because here's where they're encamped, right? And they're approaching from the west towards Jerusalem and, uh, and eventually are going to surround the uh, city on all sides. And Isaiah gives us a little bit more detail about this attack as well. Isaiah 29, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 29 verses uh, 1 through 7. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Yet will I distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. And I will camp uh, against thee round about, and will lay siege against thee with a mount, and I will raise uh, forts against thee. And thou shalt be brought down, and shalt speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall be low out of the dust, and thy voice shall be as of one that hath a familiar spirit out of the ground, and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. Moreover, the multitude of thy strangers shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones shall be as chaff that passeth away, yea, it shall be as an instant suddenly." Thou shalt be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder and with, uh, with earthquake and great noise with storm and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire, fire and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, even all that fight against her and her uh, uh, mutant, uh, mutant and uh, that distress her shall be as a dream of a night vision. So this passage in Isaiah describes the place that is under attack. It describes it as Ariel. Now, Ariel is another Hebrew name for the city of Jerusalem, and that's what is discussing there. We get a clear uh, uh, um, understanding of that at the very first verse there, verse number one, the city where David dwelt, all right? So that we understand that's what it's discussing there. And uh, so the city is going to be under siege. The battle is going to, uh, there's going to be towers erected, and, and uh, it's uh, going to be a place where sacrifice is, is taking place. 
Verse number four says it will result in the nation bowing low and speaking from the earth. That means that they've, they've laid themselves down on the ground. The reason, part of the reason for the tribulation time is a judgment against Israel, right? We've already discussed that. And here we're going to have those that are Jews that haven't taken the mark of the beast, but they're not believers in Christ. They are going to be brought to a point where they're going to bow themselves and call out to the Lord. And uh, because they're recognizing their great need of him as well. Micah chapter 4 verses 9, 11, and 12 says, Now why dost thou cry aloud? Is there no king in thee? Is thy counselor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Verse 11. Now also many nations are gathered to get against thee that say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion. But they know uh, not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand his, they his counsel. For he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. So Micah asked the people of Israel why they're crying out. Is there not a king among them? Have they neglected to recognize who is their king is what he's asking. Then finally, Zechariah tells us about the plan of allowing the attack on Jerusalem, how it serves God's purpose in putting pressure on Israel. In Zechariah chapter 13, verses 7 through 9, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against, that, uh, against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd and the sheep that shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones, and it shall come to pass." That in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and I will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. So the, the Zechariah reference here references two individuals. It references his shepherd and the man that is his fellow, the one that is his fellow. Obviously, the shepherd is speaking of Jesus. It's speaking of his first uh, advent, his first coming, uh, where he would be his, his shepherd and the sheep would be scattered because the, 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 the shepherd had been smitten. But the one that is my fellow is a reference to the Antichrist. Did you know, do you understand that the Lord can take and use even evil people for his will? He used Pharaoh in that same way as well. And uh, so Zechariah says that two parts of the land would be cut off and perish, and uh, those two parts have been cut off from the, uh, or the sections of Israel in the north and the south, as we've already read. And then Zechariah goes on to say this. He gives a very detailed description of the attack and uh, of the Lord's defense of the city. Remember, Antichrist and his armies have, enca have encamped and besieged all around Jerusalem. And in Zechariah, he gives how that attack's going to play out and how the Lord's going to defend it. And we will see those things starting to unfold in verse 11 of chapter 19 of Revelation as well. Um, let me just give you the reference, all right? Because we are running out of time here tonight. And we've got just a few more things I want to cover. But Zechariah 12, verses 1 through 9, gives that Old Testament reference of how that battle will unfold and what the Lord will do in defending it. And it says that it talks about that after that siege comes against Jerusalem, that the Lord will make the city like a heavy stone that is too heavy to lift. And uh, when the nation tries to lift it, they will be injured in that attempt. He's, he's, what he's doing is he's describing the way that the Lord supernaturally defends the city against the Antichrist siege, where the city might not have as much power as the Antichrist and his armies would, the Antichrist can't do anything against it 
and, and it's, uh, he's, it's just he's being blocked at every, at every turn. And at the side of this, in verse 5 of that, of that chapter, we're told that the people of the city acknowledge that the Lord is the one that is coming to the defense. They're recognizing God's power and His work at play. In verse 7, the Lord will defend not only those living in the city, but also the Jews who are, who are camped outside of the protection of the actual walls of the city as well. Verse number 8 says that uh, we'll see that the Lord will strengthen the hearts of the people to be able to go into battle. So even that the weakest of the men and those that are going to be part of the battle are going to actually be like David in, in their strength against the Goliath. And so this moment... Um, that is being spoken of is pictured in the history of Israel, uh, pictured in the history of Israel in a vivid way, even in the story of Hezekiah as well. I want to give you uh, just a few references to jot down in your notes to maybe uh, take a look at, uh, but uh, in uh, chapter 37 of Isaiah and uh, chapter 19 of 2 Kings, we learn the story of a serious sieging Jerusalem, and the Lord tries to give warning, and, and He tries to, to even direct those things, and uh, disobedience takes place, and there's greater loss because of it. But at the end of everything, there's a, 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 King Hezekiah, he, he took the letter from the commander of the Assyrians, and he spread it out before the Lord, and he prays. And in his prayer, he, he ends the prayer like this. In 2 Kings 19, verses 19 and 20, he says, Now therefore, O Lord our God, I beseech thee, save thou us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, that which, uh, that which thou hast prayed to me against uh, the king of Assyria, I have heard. Listen, while all those things have taken place, they're a beautiful picture to be able to foresee what it's going to be like when God protects his people in that day as well. And when the, when, when the armies of the Antichrist encamp about them, and it looks like all is lost, even though the Antichrist is failing at every turn, it seems like, okay, he's, he's actually going to come through on this one. God is there and he protects. And just as, uh, as the prophet was able to say to Hezekiah, hey, the Lord's heard your prayer, the Lord knows what his people are going through. Let me conclude with this, the story that we just talked about there of Hezekiah and the prayer and all that. Uh, and the story is a picture, like I said, of what takes place in the time of tribulation uh, with Jerusalem and the Antichrist. And it also pictures the way that the nation will be saved by the Lord in the end as well. Israel will be free, will feel the pressure of the fight and fearing for their lives, they will, they will turn to the Lord. They've bowed their, heart, their, their eyes, to the, their, their, their heads to the ground, their faces to the ground. And when they bow to him and they ask for his rescue, the Lord hears their prayer and he, he answers their prayer and, he, and, and, and rescues them. He's going to come and finish the fight for them. And, and my friends, tonight what we ought to take away from this is, wow, we're going to be able to see all that unfold from the other side, right? Like we're not going to be down there waiting and hoping that he does something on our behalf. If he's able and capable and willing to, turn, to hear and answer the prayer of those who will humble themselves before him, he's the same God then as he is today also. 
So whatever trials we go through, whatever circumstances we're in, when we turn our hearts and humility unto Him, He hears our prayers, and uh, He desires to work on our behalf. And where Israel and those that were there, they had no chance outside the Lord's help. The Lord comes, swoops in, and He fights their battle for them. And I'm thankful that the God that we serve is the same yesterday and forever, but don't forget the middle part of that. Today also. He's the same today also. Our Father, we thank you for uh, this evening. And there was a lot that was covered here tonight. I know we are trying to just set that stage for you uh, taking that step out of heaven and, and uh, coming again for uh, your, your second coming. And, and Lord, I pray that what we discussed was clear, that uh, we, we get a good picture of uh, the events of what are taking place here on this earth right when you... Uh, open up heaven and step out. And so, God, as we look forward to the weeks to come, Lord, and, and uh, just again uh, notice your, your, your supreme will and power on display, Lord, would you help us to uh, continue in uh, strengthening our faith that you can do the same here today as well, and that you hear us, and that you're, you fight our battles for us, and uh, that, you, uh, that you care deeply for us. And Lord, we thank you and praise you for, for who you are. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a prayer request card that hasn't yet been turned in, if you hold it up high, Brother Matt, it's in the back. He'll grab it on his way up. And otherwise, I'll just mention these brand new ones here tonight. Hope that you'll jot them down. And of course, make sure to make them a matter of prayer tonight also. Uh, Ms. Flora is asking prayer for Aldo Alvarado, uh, having another surgery on his foot. He's in a wheelchair at this time, not able to do any work at the, uh, as of yet either, so please keep he and his family in your, your prayers tonight. Uh, Brother Larry Whitworth is asking prayer uh, for the building program um, and uh, different things like that. Let's see. Um, so, say, what's that say, Brother Larry? What, what type of test? Hmm? You took it. What kind of a test? Okay, um, found evidence of asthma. asthma in his lungs, and so uh, just be in prayer for uh, be in prayer for for that health situation there, please. Miss Joey's asking prayer for Don. Uh, has a, had a bad headache all day and even into this evening, and so uh, be in prayer that the Lord would help that to subside. But Terry Boyle's asking prayer for Kay, who on Friday at six thirty will be uh, having surgery again on her jaw for the infection that uh, hasn't yet gone away. And uh, so please be in prayer for Miss Kay and uh, that surgery on this Friday and that, that morning. And then um, I'm not sure who this is from. Who, uh, this, is this from you, Tana? Did you turn in a request about your blood pressure test? Okay. And uh, so just be in, continue being in prayer for... Uh, Miss Tana and those situations there, and uh, just for her health at this time as well. All right, so yes, yes, thank you. Um, and I'm glad you said that because remembering something made me remember something else also. Ted has uh, knee replacement surgery this Friday, and Ted Sparks will be in prayer for him. And thank you for mentioning that. And then also, Miss Miss Billy Hammonds called me this 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 afternoon. And we've been praying, you know, for uh, the situation with the cancer, the spots, the, the tumors and all of that. And uh, so anyway, um, she just said, make sure to tell everyone thankful for the prayers. There has been um, some uh, improvement in all of those things uh, there as well. 
And uh, so just continued prayers that the Lord continue working in those ways. And um, my mind goes blank now. Was Richard? Is that, is, uh, help me out. Was that the, the name? Um, let me see. Um, Jeff, I'm sorry, Jeff, Jeffrey, not Richard, Jeffrey. Uh, the, the, and so, uh, yeah, be in prayer, continue to be in prayer for that, but praising the Lord um, for the, uh, the uh, answered prayers already and in the, in the progress that is being seen from the treatments also. And so I wanted to share that with you tonight also. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. If, if, welcome to find yourself a prayer partner if you'd like. And we'll pray for as long or for as little as we'd like here tonight, and then we'll be dismissed as we are finished.